And so even as we're trying to think about new ideas and explore different ways of thinking about creating more housing in the city, like what are those access points to, to have a, a different conversation, to have a conversation, period, right? Because <laughs> right. often in planning, it's not about the conversation, it's about the decision. This is The Move. I'm Ayushi Roy. I'm Susan McDowell. You're listening to us. <laughs> so Ayushi, you know, Boston has this office uh-huh. called the Office of New Urban Mechanics. Will they fix in my car? No, they won't. That's oh, the whole okay. thing about them. You take your oh. car to them, they won't oh. do a thing with it. Oh. You know, they're not like click and clack, <laughs> right? But I'll tell you what they do do. I've in line for the DMV in a really long time, Caesar. <laughs> Don't play with me now. <laughs> No, I mean, really. I mean, you show up, you take a car to them, they won't know what to do about it. However, uh-huh. if you're actually trying to figure out how to make the public in the city engage with each other, they're the place to go to. Oh, so they're mechanics for the government. I think more than the government, they're mechanics for really the city. The city. Yeah, okay. the city, you know, the kind of wow. life of the city, what it means to be part of the city. And so... Today, we have one of those mechanics with us. Today, we have Sabrina Dorsonville, who is visiting us from the mayor's office of New Urban Mechanics at the city of Boston. Actually, she's not a mechanic. She actually <laughs> has the title, <laughs> civic designer. No way. Yeah, yeah how about that? <laughs> so we're just kind of like, who else should we have on this you know, show that's about civic design? You are top hit on Google. <laughs> <laughs> so have you figured out what it means? <laughs> What would you say to me? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's been three years. You, you've been doing yeah. it. I mean, I think it's ever-evolving, but in the context of what we've been doing, it's been, I think I've even just started to mention it, it's been really great to bring to the work a very specific focus on, you know, how do we communicate to different versions of the public, right? How do we tell stories and how do we not just think about it as this wave of digital is sort of being ushered in? or has been ushered in for a while, how do we also think about the really analog things that matter? Being really intentional about context and always being the one in the room to say, hey, like, who's not here? Who should be here? Or how how do we do that differently? Or what didn't work last time? And Mm -hmm. what's great is this role doesn't require me to be an expert per se, but it requires me to be curious and always be willing to be that oddball or that voice in the room that is asking a different set of questions. And so... Yeah, I think joining the newer mechanics is really interesting because folks on the team don't necessarily call themselves designers. But I think for years they've been ushering a version of civic design that we haven't defined it. But it's a really interesting way of thinking about how we want to change, shift and alter the direction our cities have been taking to be a little bit less, actually a lot of it less, um, (laughs) separate and equal. And really thinking about how do you make the city more delightful for folks? How do you think about things that are a little bit harder to measure, right? Like well-being and welcomingness and sort of prioritize things like resilience and racial equity. I love that notion. How do you make the city a little more delightful Mm -hmm. for people? You know, that's a really good way to think. I like that. I'm going to take that. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's one of those things that the mechanics have been saying from Mm -hmm. day one Mm -hmm. that is still relevant. Right. And it's still a question that not all cities, not very many folks in city government sort of lead with or think about Mm -hmm. or is even a factor in how public service is thought of. And so... It's an interesting framing for the work that's trying to be done sort of in that institution. Yeah, we had a joke when I was working in government that no one ever comes to our city website <laughs> unless they need something. Like, no one's going to go peruse, web, you know, city websites the way that they do, I don't know, The Times or BuzzFeed or so many others. Yeah. And I love that notion of, yeah, like, how do you make this an attraction yeah. to people, a delight to people instead of 
an obligation. Yeah. A turbo tax. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and we like see it playing out at City Hall. And I think even with like the city's new website, right? And I think I've even heard language being used sort of in the Department of Innovation Technology of talking about how do we make the experience of someone engaging with the city delightful from the digital perspective. And I think we sort of work with folks in property management mm. and across the city to to help answer the question of when you're physically showing up to the space, right? What does it mean? How do you rethink the relationship folks have with city government? Yeah. Because before I joined, it was that like black box of like, are they here for me or are they against me? I don't know. And that narrative is carried out and unintentionally or intentionally gets perpetuated. And so it's interesting to think about what physical interventions, what sort of nudges can be made to sort of change the nature of the conversation. Because it's not just the service at the end of the day. It is the experience of providing that service. This is representative of Boston. Like, how do you start to feel welcomed even if you're going to pay a parking ticket, right? Or, (laughs) or like, you know, or get a death certificate or like, you know, a birth certificate or get married, right? It seems like a seemingly small thing and you're just doing this sort of my colleague calls it a civic chore. And uh-huh. some some things are, right? Some <laughs> things do feel that way. But how can you do that with a little bit more delight, right? It's really interesting you know, because part of what you're making me think about is inside the city government, there is the part that's about the service that government provides and its interaction with the public around the service. And how do the people who are providing that service do it in a way that creates an experience that's much more delightful, both for themselves mm-hmm. and for the people of the public they're engaging with? But I wonder how has that translated this notion to the places where the public's in contention about what the city should be doing? What has that been like trying to work on those kinds of things? Development's a big one in Boston, yeah. and there are all kinds of things. Every city can't do everything. Yeah. Struggles for resources, not just Boston, but everywhere. Struggles for issues of identity and et cetera. The quality of services, or who gets what. You know, there's always a struggle because that's what's happening. You know, that's just the way it is. So how do you bring delight to the struggle? Yeah. So I think all of our projects are different, and we sort of approach the work that we do in this experiment mentality. And one of the things I was brought on, actually, specifically to think about housing at first, and then sort of over the course of the last three years sort of shifted to a little bit broader context. But when we were in housing, the question of how do you prototype and policy, like how do you experiment with housing? And knowing that that's such a hot button topic for a lot of reasons, we're all affected by it. We're all really experiencing the pressure of luxury housing into the city of Boston. And rightfully so, folks have something to say and often don't get the space to talk about it. And so even as we're trying to think about new ideas and explore different ways of thinking about creating more housing in the city, like what are those access points to to have a, a different conversation, to have a conversation, period, right? Because <laughs> right. mm-hmm. often in planning, it's not about the conversation, it's about the decision, yes or no, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Or here or not here, right? And folks who are able to show up to those opportunities get to say yes or no, or maybe or not here, but what happens with everyone else, right? And so I think one of the projects that our team really tried to launch with this sort of mindset of how do you bring the conversation outside of the typical spaces that it is and to be a little bit more thoughtful with how we engage was our sort of yuhu, so our urban housing unit. So how do we talk about smaller living, right, in the city of Boston? We can sit 
back here and look at all the data and say, yeah, we have a large number of small households, right? Like, you know, one to two person households, but you go to certain neighborhoods and that's not what the lived experience feels like. So it doesn't matter that you can tell me those numbers. I actually want to understand how whatever your idea is works for me and works for my neighbors and works for sort of my circle as I, I define it. And so we said, okay, if we just say, smaller living, folks are going to think seaport. They're going to think this is for working professionals, a.k.a. millennials, right? <laughs> or, you know, a very specific version of the population that's not them. And we said, okay, if if we believe that that doesn't have to be the only person, right, and that we could find a way to make this affordable, how do we have the conversation about what is needed in order to make it something that's useful? And if it's not, then, like, good. <laughs> like, we can share that information. And so, we had a 385-square-foot unit that we took around to be six different neighborhoods and really tried to focus on getting outside of the downtown core for the reason of, you know, who doesn't get to be a part of this conversation. And again, it was about hearing, yes, no, maybe so, my cousin, not my cousin, right? right. Who, who, mm-hmm. who, if anyone, is this useful for and what is needed in order to make it happen? And seeing our role as being able to bring together the different pieces of the conversation that need to happen to try new things. So that was our attempt at saying, hey, like, it's usually unpleasant (laughs) to have these conversations about what might happen, right? How do we create an opportunity to have that in a a way that's more open and gives opportunity for discourse, which just doesn't. I know you said a lot in that. (laughs) And there are two things you skipped over with I think are really kind of really important to highlight. One is you actually built something and took it around to different neighborhoods, right? That's a feat, you know, deciding, okay, we're actually going to prototype this thing. We're going to build it. We're going to show it. So that's one part. And the other part, I think, is also just as important is that the notion that you built it was because you felt like, well, it's hard for people to have a conversation about stuff if they can't experience something. So give them an experience. Let them see it. And then it shifts the conversation, right? Yeah. That's really cool. Yeah. And, you know, when I reflect on it, it, we didn't just jump straight into creating a unit, right? Right. And none of this would have been possible without partners, right? We have folks at the BSA and others who were also trying to figure out this question and coming together. I think none of the work that we do is done in isolation, right? It's I, I think collaboration is incredibly important. And we started off with just taping off the ground, right? We started with the conversations and realized that We have to show you, not just tell you, right? So we taped out the ground and had folks walk through. And we had folks in, you know, Roxbury and JP say, oh, okay, all right, okay, I'm I'm with you now. Like, I, I can be a part of the conversation. And I think it was important for us to see that happen, see that shift, to say it actually is really vague. Not everyone thinks in terms of square feet. I don't. I think most of us in our everyday life don't. And so being really thoughtful about the way in which you're presenting things, and it's not, it's not that it makes one group smarter or not. It's just the language is not unified, right? And so how do we bring it to a space that helps us easily communicate what we're thinking and be able to have actual thoughtful responses back, right? Because the engagements always feel one-sided, right? Mm-hmm. And so going from taping the ground up after having conversations about it to actually having a unit that we can say, all right, let's walk through it and talk about, you know, is this stove too small, right? Right. Maybe it is, right? Do you need a porch in order for this to feel a little bit more open? Actually, like, is this bathroom perfect for you? Cool, right? And being able to have those candid conversations with folks, the physical building of it was incredibly important. For every project, it looks different. What that sort of bringing it to life is, which is why I think earlier I mentioned, right, sometimes it's really important to think context-wise, like, 
maybe it's this analog painting, right, of something, right? Or, you know, maybe it is a digital experience we want to prototype, but it's very much driven by, like, what is the question we're trying to answer or better understand and who, <laughs> multiple people, right? I think for this instance, it was not just residents, but we also had to be able to talk to developers. So that looked different. That conversation looked different. And we needed to talk in terms of policy. So that also looked a little bit different. And so we're constantly trying to be thoughtful about who the audience is. So one of the things I find interesting about the office that you're in and the work that you do, it's really pushing a notion about what government should be doing, what's its responsibility for really pushing the craft of engaging and working with the public. But they're not the only players who have that responsibility. So have you noticed spillover effects, like other organizations, other kinds of things kind of saying, oh, look what they're doing over there. We need to start thinking about some, this a little bit differently. Or are you just out there and people going like, well, let them go? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so I think we're definitely not the only one. I think the way that we lead with our work feels quite unique in regards to city government. But we do share space with folks in Boston even, right, that have been doing this type of work just from a different perspective, a different lens, a different angle. And often those are our partners, too. Yeah. And we're constantly engaging with folks across the nation and as far as London and, and even further to, like, Australia about, like, what is it that we can all do to sort of rethink government as it exists in, in these different spaces and questioning what does democracy really look like and as we are trying to think about how diverse our our cities have continued to become. We can't repeat the mistakes we've made in the past, mm -hmm. right? right? And so who gets to be a part of the, the ushering the future? And, and yeah, I think we definitely do you know, share the space with folks. But yeah, it's been really interesting, I think, even for me to see how partners that I've been working with over the course of six months or a year, whether it's picking up the language or sort of pushing us to continue to do things the way that we sort of have started doing is, it's been really great to see sort of shifts in the way that people have approached their work and have approached working with us. And yeah, I think we get asked sometimes just to sit in the room and again, like ask a different set of questions. And yeah. sometimes we are able to sort of deep dive with folks and sometimes it's a new partnership. And oftentimes it's folks who have seen like, oh, okay, last time we tried it in this particular context and that worked really well. And these folks are never, like we're never here to like swoop in and save the day, but we do sort of like pride ourselves in like poking and nudging and asking. And, and really, again, that curiosity of like, what can we do differently? How can government be different? How can we do government differently? Mm -hmm. What are some of the main values, maybe, or principles that you like to hold dear? And this could be you or it could be your team when you try to be curious, when you try to figure yeah. out what kinds of questions to ask. Because you, you gave the example earlier, oh, wait, have we thought about the people that aren't in the room? So what are some of those maybe principles that are driving you? Yeah, for me, for sure. But also, I think across our team, especially as Mayor Walsh and Atia Martin as our first sort of chief resilience officer with the city. She had been doing a lot of work with her team to try and figure out how do we create this baseline for the city that's centered around resilience and, and racial equity and thinking thoughtfully about what our city has looked like and what it needs to look like. And I think that we have prided ourselves in trying to make sure that our work mm -hmm. is, is speaking to that, speaking mm -hmm. that language. And if it hadn't been before, how do we make sure it is now? And everything that we're doing now, how do we be deliberate? And so so I think that that care, I think, was always there. I think the framing of delight really sort of <laughs> argues that that might be it, but really being thoughtful about who we're focusing on. And I think it's interesting because government, right, you're supposed to focus on everyone. And, and we get that. We're designing for all, of course, but we know that 
you have to make a decision, right? And by really framing the work, the value set around something like resilience and racial equity means that your starting point is going to be the folks who sort of fall at the margins. It's mm-hmm. something that I often use to help describe the work, right? I think we personally, like I said, I'd started with housing work and now we're doing this bucket of work called third spaces. And it's really mm-hmm. just thinking outside of home and work, you know, what are those spaces that really allow people to feel like they're healthy, thriving, and innovative, right, in the city of Boston? That's what we say. That's what the mayor pushes as what the city should be. Right. And we believe that in order to get that, everyone needs to have access to a welcoming space. They need to have access to a space that helps them feel connected to people or or resources and a space that allows them to be creative. And that creative piece is really thinking about agency, having the ability to shift and shape and alter a space. And so when we're embarking on work like that, we sort of pause and actually just naturally the work focuses on seniors, right? Older adults. It focuses on young people who aren't voters and aren't taxpayers, but are incredibly important to the future of the city. It means that we're focusing on folks in the recovery community. We're focusing mm-hmm. on folks who happen to be houseless, right? What is mm-hmm. what does welcoming space look like for them? We're thinking about our immigrant communities, our people of color in the city of Boston, and how do we make sure that they also have access to spaces like this? Mm-hmm. And so I think a lot of the ways that the mechanics have led with thinking about Let's not lead with technology, but let's think about how technology builds trust. Let's think about the light, right? Let's think about what people want and need and not just doing things for things' sake. And then I think this extra key portion of thinking about resilience, racial equity, and Mm -hmm. folks who fall into the margins, right? That has been incredibly important for guiding the way that the work has been unfolding Mm -hmm. over the last few years. It's a, a really interesting growth I'm seeing having heard the history of the team and also being a part of making that, you know. I know. You know I had it. <laughs> you know I had another thing to say, but I was like, girl, you keep going so long. That's all right. You can no. go as long as you are. Keep going. As long as you are. No, I just recently was, every time I talk about the work, I think you just reflect a little bit. And yeah. just watching how, you know, it started from a team of two, right? Really diving into projects that sometimes landed in the sort of technology space. Right. And so I think... That's why saying it explicitly, like, no, like, technology is not for technology's sake. Like, mm-hmm. right now, a lot of our team is focused on really trying to push this sort of smart city narrative to not just be about the nice new gadget, but really be about how do we create a more human city, right? How do we mm-hmm. actually think about real challenges that folks are facing and how technology, whether analog or digital, right, can actually support that and push that. So, of course, we're doing work in regards to autonomous vehicles and, you know, we're not ignoring that. That. I think it's really about how do we think holistically, right, about mm-hmm. the future of the city. But, yeah, just seeing over the years how, whether it's the size of the team or the ways in which we've been able to expand the work, these are the first times that we are putting something out there from us and not just with a partner. And that's still incredibly important. I think there are partners involved, but saying, like, hey, like, we have been asking this question about smart cities and how we can actually be more human, so we're going to put out an RFP and see what can we do about it. Or we have been asking all these questions with our partners. We're going to put those questions out and invite the city of Boston, who's rich with resources in terms of academia, but also like community organizations and everyday people who are interested in trying to change their city for the better. Like, how do we put it out there, what we're doing and what we want to do? And so just seeing how it's grown from not necessarily reactive, but very much intentional and continuing to grow in that sort of intentional mindset, which is which is really phenomenal. So for you, mm-hmm. right, just for you personally, hey. like, <laughs> 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 I don't know, because part of, you know, part of what we're really interested in 
a part of what we want to connect around this is that it's people doing this work and yeah. people have a lot that they have to kind of work through. There's disappointments, there's joys, there's success, there's failures. There's, I mean, there's everything in between, right? And there's delight. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> a couple of things. Like one, kind of given the experience you've had so far, not only just inside of Boston, but with others you've talked to, as you said, around the world and everything and seeing what other people are doing. What do you see as a, the challenge that most people are most common that folks are facing into as they try to expand actually the way the public is engaged with the city? Is there anything, one or two things that are just like everybody's like really struggling with or working toward, you know, really working in? It's just. Mm. So from my, <laughs> my sort of perspective, from the beginning, just the question of like community engagement has been really interesting. Like that idea of like, what does that actually mean? Why do we do that? When do we do it? And I think I've oversimplified it in my head as something to deal with is often we have residents who are yelling on the top of their lungs, like, you're not listening to me. And that's sort of the starting point of every conversation from that end, right? And then from the inside out, city government speaking, right, it feels like the conversation's like a non-starter. They're not going to listen. They're just going to yell. So we're just going to ask a specific question, right? And I'm watching and seeing as folks are trying to overcome that challenge, which is a really historical perspective of the way that cities and government has <laughs> worked with residents. I say worked with, and I'm, I'm kind of sort of doing air quotes because that's often not the case, right? right. It's not mm -hmm. always a conversation, right? It's not, you know, there's timelines and deadlines and all these things that are sort of the case for why we don't do things differently. And it's been incredibly important to try and figure out how we do it differently and and what are the ways in which we can sort of embed that conversation early on in the process to make it mm. natural, right? Mm. To make it a reflex, because I think so often the reflex is, is not that. The reflex in a lot of different scenarios, I think, not just city government, but I think in the equity context, the reflex is not that, right? Like, I go to what I know, I go to who I know, and if who I know is not diverse or different or doesn't acknowledge or open the opportunity for difference or discourse, right? Like, that's just where I'll that's be, okay. yeah. right? Mm. And so folks are trying, right? And I'm watching them try. And I think it's really exciting to see that push. And so the more and more we can think about what does it actually mean to create the table, <laughs> right? <laughs> to find a seat at the table, to, you know, make a seat and put it at the table or what, whatever <laughs> version. <laughs> yeah. Like, I mean, because, you know, I often end up in a lot of conversations about, you know, diversity and design. And on one part, I'm sort of disgruntled, but at the same time, I'm like, I know these need to happen and I'm happy to be the person and be one of many of us who are trying to figure out, like, what does it mean? <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. Like, how do we, one, unpack diversity? And two, how do we actually think about how you get there? Right? And it's been really, I think, exciting to continue to be a part of that and really be able to amplify the voices that are trying to do that work as well as trying to do that myself. And in regards to the sort of community engagement piece, there's also the like paralleled, like, what does civic engagement mean, yeah. right? How do we think about democracy beyond voting, right? And I think those are really hard questions that folks are trying to figure out because even as an elected official, there needs to be space to continually have a contact point with folks that you're making decisions on behalf of. And putting your trust in someone doesn't mean that you then have no say or no ability to communicate, you know, where things have changed because we do not all stay the same, we you know, the same. right? Right. I like chuckle at like persona exercises and, and at the same time, every time someone's like, all right, let's do that. I'm like, but also remember the humans... You know, we change, even change if a little bit, but time. the car, yeah, exactly. And so 
just all of the words that we have continued to use and that are obviously tied to processes, like whether it be civic engagement or public engagement, community engagement, it's really just pausing and asking ourselves, what is what has that meant? Yeah. Mm-hmm. What should it mean? And really trying to figure out like what it can look like in the future. Even if it means starting small. You know, we were interviewing one person as part of this series, and it's interesting, you brought up the thing about people come to the meeting sometimes and they're screaming and hollering. And he said, as a planner himself, he says, you know, and this is because we were talking about this whole thing about designing for healing. He says, maybe we should be a lot more intentional about creating those spaces where people should be able to come in and scream mm-hmm. and holler because that's a real thing for them. And it's in a real emotion. If we can't create the space for it and take it on, then we can't possibly move forward, which I think is a really interesting thing to do instead of saying, how do we get around it? It's about how do we embrace it? Yeah. It's really like realizing like, there's a lot of grief. There's a lot of healing that needs to be done yep. on all sides. Mm-hmm. And how do we create the context that allow people to kind of, mm-hmm. however they need to, come into that so that they can move forward? Yeah. And this is a question of what we've all inherited, right? Mm-hmm. And I would say a lot of us have inherited a lot of trauma, right? Mm-hmm. Like, yep. to your point, right, that needs healing. We've also inherited these biases and perspectives. And I think the question of how do we do government differently, right? How do we rethink civic engagement? All these questions, I think, come from the point of saying, wherever we were, if we acknowledge that some of that is not what we need right now, how do we deal with it? And so in some cases, it's really, yeah, like, how do we actually have a conversation? What does that look like? How do we actually create the space for you to heal, right? I think the social emergency response centers are a really interesting model, um, you know, design studio for social intervention of just saying, actually, we might not want to talk about the real, (laughs) the thing, but we want to be in a space where we feel like if I have to let it out, I can let it out. And that there are people around me that respect and get that that is real, that my trauma is real, that that social issue is not invisible to everyone, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. And so I think that is just like one example of how that really happens in a lot of different areas, right? The way that we, I even said it before I was a part of city government, I had a vision of city government that was perpetuated by the people around me, right? Mm -hmm. And in some places that's true, but if the city of Boston is aiming to not be that, we all have to sort of pause and figure out what are the ways in which we can show that we're different, as well as creating the space for that difference to start to unfold naturally, right? Mm -hmm. One of the things that comes up for me in thinking about this is, We've done a really good job, I think, in this country, or maybe not even a good job, we've just done a job of really (laughs) outlining what the role of government is, right, and really supporting the institutions of government. But we actually haven't done, I think, the work that needs to be done about supporting the institution of the public, Mm. right? There actually is nothing in our society that does that. We've kind of grown up in a way that we've, I mean, grown up as a nation that has really saw the public as all these kind of separate groups that need to vie for something. But if we were to step back now and say, well, actually, no, we can see it as something different. We actually don't have anything that exists that can bring birth that new public, Mm -hmm. that new way for a public to be in relationship with each other. So I don't know how we get there. Sometimes Mm -hmm. I think, well, that's not government's responsibility, right? It's, It's a different responsibility because the Government should be there in service to the public. So how does the public actually create its own mechanisms for knowing what it needs to know to work with government? I don't have answers for that, but I think it's, <laughs> I think it's the challenge that we're facing yeah. as we move into this new world. 
Yeah. I think with all the questions I've perhaps posed already and ones that have come up even in the past year with the work, is like, should the city be a healer? Right? Mm. What does that mean? Right. And having folks at EMS be like, oh, I think we are. Right. And, and having other folks in different departments be like, uh, I don't I don't really get, right? And so it's real, the question of what do we need? What do we want? And how do we all come to some sort of agreement of what we can do in order to actually, again, I keep saying like usher in, but like really craft and shape the sort of future of Boston that is far more equitable and really does take a note from past practices, right? Past investments, past policies, and actually says like, we we get it. And we may not know ourselves, but how do we invite the opportunity to change that? Right. So you you might be right. Like, I don't think either of us have the the answer. Um, It might be partly the role of city government. Right. But it also right might not be at all. And I think even in our work, we are often like, actually, do we need to step out the way? Is that actually the project at hand is figuring out how to step out of the way? Right. Mm. And so we have a lot of experiments that are in the realm of trying to do that. Just say, okay, let's just create the space and then step away and figure out, you know, when are we needed? Right. And how do we be in service to the public with the public, though? Right. And knowing that the public is not a monolith, right? Like there are so many versions of the public. And I think going back to like, you know, how do you prioritize, right? Is is one in which by looking at the past and really questioning, you know, where do we want to be? We start to get those answers naturally. I know we're getting close to the end. One thing I wanted to say though, that you didn't necessarily sign up for, but I just want to appreciate and say <laughs> it, which I think is just wonderful, is that We started out by saying, hey, your title is civic designer, (laughs) and we see our cities changing all the time. We're here at MIT in the Department of Urban Studies and Planning, always trying to recruit folks in and trying to figure out how we get more people of color involved in it. I think people are saying that, you know, actually, the design of the civic space is a planning problem. It's something that we should be doing, but you're a model. Mm Mm-hmm what planners can become <laughs> in a way that can actually, I think, help us attract other people to the field by saying yeah. it's not all about paper and drawing plans. You know, yeah. it's also about creating really new opportunities. Yeah. And so it's it's interesting when folks ask me sort of my journey into this, right, because some might look and say, like, so urban planning, you studied urban planning. I'm like, uh, no, not quite, right? Architect, no, not really. <laughs> you know, and I studied industrial design, and I got from that experience understanding, you know, how important it was to listen to people, right, to think thoughtfully about their everyday experiences if you're going to design for them, right, and so that, that attempt at being thoughtful, as thoughtful as you can be, mm-hmm. and really questioning, like, what is my role as a designer? Am I a facilitator? Am I creating something? What does it mean? And then sort of going on to study a very vague degree, but a remarkable experience, a sort of a master of science in design and urban ecology. So people hear that, they're so like, are you an urban ecologist? And I'm like, no. You know, so they're like, so like an urban planner. I'm like, mm, again, no, I don't think so. But there's just so much that this space, the space of civic design sort of needs to welcome in. This, it's, yes. I think the perfect context to say, it's not about whatever silo you got used to thinking that you can operate in. How can me with the lens of an illustrator be a part of the conversation about the shaping of the city, right? How can me as a graphic designer be a part of that? How can me as a sociologist, how can me as a doctor, how can me as a, whatever it might be. And so I think if our team is any example of what that looks like to try and build that acknowledgement that it's it's not going to just be one field or one practice, right? You know, we have game designers and like former biology teachers and folks come from all different walks of life that we're creating together and welcoming in others from, again, all these different practices to do the same. And my sort of like pet 
desire from the beginning. I remember my interview, I was like, we need to get like more industrial design students to like see this. And I don't think it's just about industrial design students, but I think it's about, you know, really having a conversation about civic life, civic design perhaps, but really like how do art and design influence, shape, assist, support, be a part of the city in a way that I don't think we explicitly talk about now. We're waiting and we're excited and so it's great that y'all are um, a part of that that too, right? Yeah. Well, Sabrina, thank you so much thank for joining you. us. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great. Sabrina brought some materials for us today. Yeah, and, and we'll did. have them up on the website for folks to look at. Yes. But it's actually the first publications from... So, yeah, it's... <laughs> we finally put out a year in review. Obviously, if anyone ever wants to talk about the work, we are an open door. And so folks can feel free to email us and we do our best to meet with anybody. But we thought it would be great to share, you know, what we had been doing for the last year in terms of the buckets of work that we have sort of embarking in. And the other document that I brought to share is our civic research agenda. So it's our attempt at putting out there the questions that we're asking ourselves in collaboration with our partners, different city departments, and really where we hope to continue to partner with folks in the city and beyond on. Great. Well, thank Amazing. you. And we will have those up for people to check out online. To check out online. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. You know, one of the great things about speaking with Sabrina today was the way in which a lot of the work of the new urban mechanics dives into the design principle we've been working on around digital and analog. Yeah, it really is. I mean, it's great. You know, like the whole notion that they are a place of you know, in their name, they're mechanics, and they're thinking about technology, mm-hmm. and they're thinking about those kinds of infrastructure issues. And at the same time, they're worried and really concerned that people actually are attracted by delight. You know, what was incredible was her and her office are working to build services for people across the identities of Boston. And I think a lot of what we, I, I'll say I forget, is that just the very nature of my speech whether it be online, whether it be in Twitter, whether it be in person, whether I'm sitting or standing, actually impacts the person I'm speaking to and how they receive my speech. Mm -hmm. And a lot of what the mechanics is doing is really trying to understand how to speak beyond the traditional means of what speech looks like. For government, it's a lot of jargon. You know, it's a lot of legalese. It's a lot of online and more and more as we've gathered statistics, we understand there is a digital divide and that a lot of older folks or lower income folks don't have access to these online digital services and PDFs and other applications that are an important part of the process of living in a city as complex as Boston. And I want to be careful because I I always have this problem with the digital divide one because it is true but even if there wasn't a digital divide, mm-hmm. this issue between the analog and the digital would still exist. Oh, oh, completely. Because of who we right. are as human beings, right? Absolutely. So it's like, it's not about solving that problem. It's like a new chapter of an existing problem. It's a new chapter right. of an existing problem, right. right. Exactly. It just plays into this much deeper problem. You know, one of the things that I really appreciate about the way they do this is here they are, the Office of New Urban Mechanics, and they're searching for delight. Mm-hmm. And this really is, I think, a way of talking about this need for both analog and digital spaces. Mm-hmm. You know, the analog is the mechanical part of it. Mm-hmm. The delight is the human piece of it. Mm-hmm. And we need that because people, our voices, and the way we speak and the way we hear and listen, exist in both worlds. 
This has been The Move, and you can catch us at themove.mit.edu. I'm Susan McDowell. And I'm Ayushi Roy. Thanks for listening. <laughs>